Father's Day. My, like Johnny said, my name is Phil, one of the pastors here, and I am uh, bringing the message today. Uh, so you guys ready? It's, uh, I don't know that you are. Because um, you don't know what I'm about to say to you, so uh, you can say you're ready, but no. Uh, we're going to start pretty heavy. Earlier this year, the U.S. Surgeon General released an advisory titled this, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Right? Happy Father's Day. In it is uh, multiple evidence-based research findings on the increasing ill effects of loneliness and isolation on our obvious, what we would say obvious, our mental health and state but surprisingly, even more so, the, the troubles that it brings to our physical health as well. The report states that our loneliness epidemic has the physical equivalent effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Right? Let that sink in for a second. I thought I was healthy because I don't smoke. But then I'm lonely, so I do smoke. No. It's, it's a cycle, right? No, just kidding. Oh, 15 cigarettes a day. The separations we have created among our families, our neighborhoods, and our neighbors, our communities, our work environments, and yes, even here at church, is causing drastic health deficiencies in three of every five people who claim to experience loneliness on a daily basis. Our new structures of community that we have created, the rise of social media, the effects of a shutdown during a pandemic have all driven us into isolation and loneliness at increasing rates. And we are misleading ourselves by considering our connections on those social medias to consist of real community and connection. And we think that, well, by coming to church at least once or twice a month, uh, we have community. Or by sitting with your family in a room staring at a screen thinking that just because I'm in the same room as these people, we mislead ourselves in believing that is community. You guys feeling all right? So, are you guys ready? I'm gonna ask that question again, right? Because now that you know what I'm talking about. I'm guilty of it all. So I'm not condemning you. I'm not in any way, shape, or form condemning uh, you without condemning myself. And quite honestly, while you might be feeling a little dis depressed about everything that I just said and the state of our society and our culture and our country, uh, as it comes to loneliness, I mean, I feel it too. I read the 60-some page report that the, uh, most of it, not all of it. I didn't read the bibliography. That was like four pages. So uh, I read most of the report from the U.S. Surgeon General. And you know, honestly, I never thought of myself as being a lonely person. Yet as we continue uh, through our series uh, about my people, and we cannot not address what is one of the most significant things standing in the way of our society and us as people experiencing deep community. So doom and gloom, but there's good news. There's good news. The good news is that we were created not to be alone. And so we know that God has, as part of his plan and as his heart, for us to experience and live in deep community. Right, it started at the beginning with Adam when God said to him, it's not good for him to be what? Alone. So he gave him a helper, a companion, 
someone to do life with, someone to share life with. God gave Adam another person to experience deep community. And so loneliness isn't a new problem. It's not a new epidemic in our society. It's just different now. It's different in the way we experience it, how it shows up in our lives and how it impacts us. It's not a new phenomenon, but we are finally beginning to realize the tremendous effects, effects loneliness is having on our lives, emotionally, mentally, but now even physically. And the news is, the good news is that God wants to meet us. God wants to meet us in our loneliness and bring us out of it and overcome it. God has been meeting the lonely since the beginning of time and bringing about change in their lives in ways that we might not expect it. And it should bring us comfort, really. It should bring us some sort of comfort, knowing that we are not alone in our loneliness. Right? Three in five people in the country experiencing loneliness. We're not alone in our loneliness, and that we can see the redemptive work of God in others, in, the, in our lives around us, and in through the Bible. And so today I want to take you through three stories from the Bible, and then I'm going to dive into a scripture later. But these three stories are of people who uh, met God and were met by God in a loneliness, in the loneliness of their life, and were changed by an encounter and in a meeting of God. These three stories set up the model of how, through Jesus, we overcome loneliness in ourselves and in the world. But before, before we dive in, I just want to take a moment, and I want, I, want to, I want to pray. And I just want to invite the Lord to come, because this is heavy stuff. And uh, I'm very much aware that this is going to stir up a lot of things for a lot of people, or maybe just the fact that I'm up here saying the word loneliness on a stage uh, is stirring up something in you. So... Before we go any further, I just want to take a moment. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you just come? God, would you meet us today where we are? Would you begin to take down our guards? Would you begin to soften the walls that we've put up around our hearts and our lives? And would you help us to become open to receiving what you have for us today? You are a God who meets your people in distress and in loneliness. And so we just invite you and meet us here today in our loneliness, in our distress, in our hurt, in, in our grief. Would you come and meet us right now? Amen. Amen. Okay, so I do have just something real quick to, uh, to break the ice a little bit, to kind of lighten the mood. We're talking about Jesus being our friend, and how Jesus is our friend, and we are friends. We'll get into that in a minute, but every time I think about and hear the, even just the phrase, Jesus is my friend, this comes to my mind. Go ahead and play it. All right, so now you know what's going through my, my head the whole entire time I'm talking about Jesus as a friend. So uh, just, that's just what's playing in the back of my mind. Just letting you into a little bit of the crazy, scary part that is me. 
So, the first story I want to share with you. So, uh, in Genesis, the story of Sarai. I don't know if you're familiar with that person, but in her story, in her Genesis story, it's, she is the husband or the wife of Abram. Her husband is Abram. So, a quick story, quick summary. Sarai was married to Abram, who God made a promise with, who God made a covenant with, to make him and all his ancestors into a great nation. God's people, the people of Israel, that should become the people of Israel. And Sarai was to play a role in that, as she was to bear a son for him. But she was unable to do so. She was barren and old, unable to have any offspring. And so their story together starts uh, with them going to Egypt due to a famine in the land. Sound familiar? It's foreshadowing. Okay. Uh, it's irrelevant, but I just think it's interesting. Um, they went into, they were, they were uh, exiled basically to Egypt due to the famine, and her own husband, Abram, in an effort to spare his own life, convinced Sarai to tell the Egyptians that she was his sister, so that they wouldn't kill him and steal his wife. So she did that. Uh, uh, and in doing so, she became, though, a servant and a slave to Pharaoh. Can you imagine the disappointment the feeling of betrayal and hurt that Sarai had experienced when her own husband said, yeah, we're just going to pretend that we're not married, and I just want you to be my sister so I don't die. That shouldn't feel good. Being abandoned by her husband and taken into slavery. If that were it, it'd be a pretty terrible story, but it gets worse. So she was released from slavery because God plagued, uh, sent plagues on Pharaoh, again, intended to be foreshadowing, cool, but irrelevant. And shortly, not after, and shortly after not being able to get pregnant, Sarai, wanting to fulfill the promise that God made, gave, her, uh, gave Abram, her husband, her maidservant, her best friend, basically, the one who lived life with her, who did everything with her, took care of her. She offered Hagar, to Abram to produce an offspring just to fulfill the promise God made. It worked, but it backfired because Hagar became incredibly proud and started flaunting her new offspring in front and, and basically finding favor with Abram. She flaunted that in front of Sarai, shunning her, belittling her, talking down to her. And here is Sarai's servant, her best friend, her, the one who cared for her and lived with her side by side, step by step, there with her at every turn and every life event, betrays her because she could do what Sarai could not. Have you ever experienced betrayal like that? First her husband and now her best friend, turning her backs on her. What loneliness she must have felt. What loneliness you must have felt when you were betrayed and when you were abandoned. And so it does take a turn, and it starts to get better. Because God met Sarai at her loneliness lowest point. And through Abraham, God changed her name from Sarai, which means my princess, to Sarah, which means princess. And mind you, it doesn't seem like a big change. However, it is significant. Because when she's named my princess, that means she belongs to Abraham and to her father, and it's small. She is a small princess. But at the name like Sarah, which also translated strength, woman of strength, 
She is not just Abraham's princess. She is princess. She is princess. And so Sarah is princess to all nations. God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 17 saying, I will, uh, I will bless her and she will produce nations, not just an offspring, but she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. See, what happens is God shows up, meets Sarah in her lowliest part, gives her a name, changes her name, and changes her story, changes the trajectory of her life. He met her at her worst and overcame her loneliness with descendants upon descendants, with deep community, generations of people and kings, the princess to all nations. God has a plan and purpose for deep community and had a plan and a purpose for deep community in Sarah's life to meet her in her loneliness. So let's jump to another story, the second story, in the New Testament, with a guy named Simon, one of the first apostles, but he was just a lowly fisherman, committed to his trade and had the stench to prove it. And he was looking for the Messiah all throughout. And when his brother Andrew found Jesus, they both ran toward him. And Jesus said to them, both fishermen, he said the old famous line, I will make you fishers of men. See, early on in Jesus and Peter's and in Simon's relationship, Jesus recognized something special in Simon and quickly changed his name to Cephas, or also known as Peter, which means the rock. And he says, on you I will build my church. Peter is really well known in the Gospels, right? I mean, you guys know, all know about Peter? You know, he's known for the, being the one who uh, fails to walk on water, Right? He takes a step, but then takes his eyes off Jesus and falls in the water. He's also known for questioning Jesus when he tells them to put out their nets on the other side of the boat. Jesus tells them to throw out their nets after they haven't been catching anything, and he challenges and questions Jesus, saying, we've been doing this all day, I think we know what we're doing, so I don't think you know what you're doing, Jesus, because I am a fisherman. And he was proven wrong. He also tries to refuse Jesus' uh, request to wash his feet at the Last Supper. And he's the guy that denied even knowing Jesus three times after his arrest. And let's not forget the time when Peter thought it would be a good idea to rebuke the Messiah, in which Jesus responds in Matthew 16, Get behind me, Satan. This is that Peter. Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Here's a guy trying to do his best, only to come up short time and time again. It may not seem that Peter was alone or lonely. After all, he was surrounded by, constantly by 10 or 11 other men following Jesus around. How could he be lonely with all that community? Sometimes loneliness comes in the shape of shame and failure, feeling isolated and alone because you think little to nothing of yourself. I'm no good, I can't do anything right. The only one who can get, am I the only one who can't get this right? Am I the only one who is failing? Everyone else is better than me, I'm worthless. Does any of that sound familiar to anyone? Isolation and loneliness doesn't mean you are physically alone or abandoned. Loneliness can be experienced when we feel we are all alone in our struggles. All alone in our questions, alone in our pursuits of what is right and good, what we think is right and good, alone in our failures, because certainly nobody else screws up as much as we do. Loneliness of this type has little to do with other people, though, but everything to do with ourselves. 
We isolate. We isolate ourselves and experience loneliness of our own making. Simon's name was changed to Peter, yes, and Jesus changed his story for certain, but it was in that new life that Peter struggled to live into the story that Jesus set before him. He was a slave to the expectations he placed on himself. Does that resonate with anybody? All right, one more story of loneliness from the Bible. There was this guy, probably know of him as well. His name was Saul. This guy, Saul, was the most famous of the Jewish leaders at his time because he hated people who followed Jesus. Hated might be light. Like, he like, hated people like he sought them out to kill them, hated them, right? Saul believed that he was doing God's work by seeking out those who followed Jesus and eliminating them or convincing them to follow, uh, stop following Jesus. He was doing God's work by eliminating all the Jewish defectors on earth and experience um, defectors on earth by persecuting them and getting them to stop following Jesus. And if they didn't, well, they'd meet a stone death. It's hard to imagine a guy like Saul being lonely. But as many people in high up positions of authority and management will tell you, it can be lonely at the top. When you're the one at the top, people either after your position, looking to take you down, or following because they fear you. Saul seemed like the kind of guy that wouldn't take no for an answer, wouldn't give two craps about what you're thinking or feeling, and certainly doesn't want to negotiate. While Saul might have, may have had followers, they were more like cronies in his mob. And he was the boss. No one gets close to the boss. The boss is a slave to his own agenda and serves only himself. When you find yourself in that place, it does not take long to recognize and to experience that you are all on your own. And while it may stroke your ego for a bit, anyone who has been in that position of authority for any amount of time discovers they stand at the top of a mountain in isolation. But it gets better. The Lord met Saul. While he was traveling up the road to persecute and kill more Christians, the Lord showed himself to him. In a great spectacle of flashing light and visions and calls Saul to repent and change. Jesus then goes to show himself in a vision to a disciple named Ananias and saying this about Saul. The guy, remember Saul, right? Not, not the Paul that we know, but the Saul that I just told you about. He said, uh, Jesus said this to Ananias in a vision about Saul. For this man is my chosen instrument. And while there might not have been an official change to his name, when Saul was taken to Jerusalem, proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, and then welcomed in with the apostles, he was no longer referred to Saul, as Saul, but as Paul. In his loneliness point, God showed up and met him and changed his name and changed his story. Jesus met Paul in his loneliness and isolation, at the top of his game, a slave to his own agenda, and changed his heart and mission, bringing him into a community of like-minded followers of Jesus. And we know the history that, comes, that follows. 
See, in ancient times, names have meaning. Names have, names have purpose, they have power, and they carry a purpose and a story. We've lost that in our sense of, uh, in a sense, in our current culture. We just want names that sound cool and uh, display our individuality as parents, right? Like, look at the name I came up with. This is what's cool. But in the old times, a person's name was a part of their identity and was the future and the present of who they are and will become. And because names are so important in that time and critical to a person, when someone's name is changed, it is an extremely significant event that not only changes how people address them or what the name that they write down or sign on their checks and what they're called, but it changes the entire trajectory of their lives. In each of these three stories, that God met them in their loneliness, changed their names, thereby changing their story, bringing about not just new sense of identity, but in each of them a deep community whether in the form of generations of nations, a tightly connected brotherhood of followers of Jesus, or a once persecuted now partners in mission and ministry. So, what does that have to do with us? My name has not been changed. I tried to change my name when I was in fourth grade to PJ. It did not succeed, so I'm still Phil. So, I don't, God didn't meet me in that, change my name and change my story in that way. But what does it have to do with us? If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 15. If you don't have it, it'll be up on the, the screen behind me. And this is our text for this morning. And I know it's been a while since I've started and I'm now getting to it, but I needed to set this all up. Because what we're about to read in John 15 is the example and the way that Jesus, uh, the, the way that Jesus intends and has planned to overcome our loneliness. Starting in verse 9, it says this. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that, that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask, in the, in, uh, ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command, you love one another. Did you see that? Did you see what happened in there? You see what Jesus did? What did he do? <laughs> I mean, you guys said yes, so I figured I'd ask if you were really, really, I mean. He changed our name. We went from slave and servant to friend. Sarai, she was a slave. Literally, a slave in Egypt. She was enslaved to this promise and enslaved to her situations in life. God met her, changed her name, and made her a friend. No longer a slave. Peter was a slave to his expectations. God met him, changed his name to Peter, and changed the trajectory and the story of his life and freed him from the slavery of his expectation. Paul was a slave to his own agenda. God met him, showed up met him, changed his story, changed his name, changed the trajectory of his life, 
freed him from the slavery of his own agenda and gave him a purpose. Jesus, what we see here, speaking to his disciples, his friends, his community, his people, I no longer call you slaves to whatever it is that you're a slave to. I call you friends. I've called you friends. Jesus changes our name from servant or slave to friend. Jesus' plan to overcoming loneliness in us and our world is being friends. Sounds like something pretty strikingly obvious, doesn't it? Is really a long sermon necessary to tell you that? That loneliness is eradicated by friends. Sounds kind of simple. Yes. However, might I say, how's that working for you? How's that working for all of us? When three and five of us experience loneliness on a daily basis, how's that working for you? I'd say not that great. Friendship is the cure to loneliness. Now, if you're so sure that that's as simple as that, why did the Surgeon General have to come out with a public health crisis called loneliness? And while it might seem obvious and elementary, it doesn't mean at all that we're doing it or doing it well. So what is so different about what Jesus is saying here that we aren't doing and not applying to our own lives to overcome loneliness in our world? Author and speaker Jenny Allen in her book, Find Your People, unpacks five practices to build and grow deep community in our lives. And it just so happens that these five unrelated uh, practices unrelated to her book are found here in this passage. So I wanna take us through those five practices. These five practices reflect how Jesus desires to relate to us as his friends, as well as a model for us how we should approach friendship with others in being friends to others. So let's go through these five practices. The first is proximity. Fun word, right? Proximity just means close. And we see that in the word remain. That word remains in this six verses appears four times. And if we go back further uh, into the earlier verses of chapter 15 of John, it's the I am the vine, you are the branches, familiar passage, remain in me. He says it so many more times there. There's the, uh, the aspect of remain, that we need to be close with one another. We cannot remain with one another through just simply technology and across the country. Yes, technology has been helpful in connecting us in some ways but we don't maintain close connections over the internet. Remain is a word that requires closeness and proximity, being near in each other's business on a regular contact. We cannot remain with one another by occasional texts or the annual happy birthday greeting on Facebook. And so a significant downside to our technology boom is the feeling that our digital connect uh, digital connectability, made that up, is equivalent to personal connectedness. They are not the same church. Jesus desires us to remain in him and to remain with others in close contact and nearness where we can share life face-to-face -face and not hide behind anything else. So the first practice is proximity, or being close and remain. Second is transparency or intimacy. We see here in verse 15, Jesus says, I have made known to you everything I have heard from the Father. Everything. Jesus has been transparent with us. He has played his whole deck, his whole, all of his cards, 
laid it all before us, and he has made known to us everything. We need to be transparent with Jesus. We need to be an open book before him. And we need to be transparent with other people. It's hard, and it's really uncomfortable to, be open, uh, to share openly all that is going on with your life. I mean, we have all grown so accustomed to presenting uh, only the side of us that we want other people to see. Presenting only what we want other people to know about us. But that looks nothing like the way Jesus shared his own life with us, nor is it what he desires from us or for us. Transparency and intimacy have been proven the most difficult and challenging of these five. And as a people, we have been conditioned by our society and previous experiences in our life to close off and to not be transparent or intimate with anyone, let alone Jesus. The biggest barrier to us being transparent with one another is certainly the pain and the shame that we have experienced from the hands of another human being. We have all been disappointed, betrayed, abandoned, let down, lied to, directly hurt by other people, and we all know that the closer we get with someone, the more that the experiences hurt when they happen. Not if, but when. And what's more is that not only have we been hurt and disappointed by others, the truth is that we have been the ones who have hurt and disappointed other people. But we need to recognize that Jesus will never hurt or disappoint us. His love for us will never fail us or let us down when and where other people would. We need to recognize that the loss and loneliness that comes from closing yourself off and refusing to be intimate and transparent with another person is more detrimental, more painful, more harmful than the pain we experience from being disappointed and let down. Jesus has built his relationship with us around intimacy and transparency by sharing with us the mysteries of the kingdom and his life. And to build and grow deep community, we need to do the same with him and with others. <clears throat> the third is accountability. We need to read, we read in verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. At first glance, that seems like a transactional exchange, right? Where we give something and we get something, almost like dangling a little carrot in front of us. Yet Jesus isn't about transactional exchanges, he is about relational exchanges. His command is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. Jesus is setting up a system of accountability with him and with other people, which comes through intimacy and transparency. We need to be willing to be, and able to be, uh, to be called out when we are wrong, to be challenged and confronted when, confronted when others see in us something that doesn't align with the will and the heart of God, or with what we know or they know to be best for us. Accountability, it's yucky, it hurts, it sounds really mean and untrusting, but in reality, accountability is allowing someone else to help us live out the life to the full that Jesus promises. We need to be accountable to Jesus, allowing him to speak into our lives, pointing out where we, where and how we need to be better Keep, uh, we need to better keep his commands, <clears throat> and we need other people around us who can do the same. I'm going fast because I'm running out of time. Bear with me. Fourth, shared purpose. Huge. We see in verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you to produce fruit and that your fruit would remain. <clears throat> Jesus is sending us on a mission. He is sending us on a mission to produce the fruit uh, of Jesus in our lives, to continue the work he started. 
Jesus said in the previous chapter of John that those who believe in him will go on to do even greater things than he has. Jesus chose, uh, has chosen us and continues to choose us to complete the mission of bringing everyone on earth into a restored relationship with him. He has brought us into his mission and purpose and desires us to make our own. Having a shared purpose with another person connects us deeply to our core. It goes beyond the shallow levels of friendship but pushes us deep into relationship, joining our hearts to beat as, the, uh, the same, uh, beat as one for the same thing. Fifth and last is consistency. <clears throat> I'm going to circle back to this word remain again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because it not only pertains to proximity, but also to consistency. See, in our current climate of culture wars and lumping individuals into assumptions of larger groups that we can boycott and cancel, we are quick to write off people for any number of reasons, the simplest and the smallest and the insignificant. We are so quick to judge someone when they have done something wrong. The first sign of getting hurt by another, we cut them off in rapid manners. However, the friendship of Jesus is one of consistency, one that never fails, that never lets go, and that never lets you down. <clears throat> if there were ever a person to cut off, write off, dismiss, ignore, it would be you and me. Of all the times we have lied, the, all in the number of times that we've betrayed the Lord, the number of times we've ignored, we've hurt, and we've sinned against Jesus, he has yet to cut us off, to cancel us, to throw us away, to discard us, and abandon it. He has yet to end our relationship and our friendship. Jesus is in it for the long term, and it requires consistency. To remain is to stay connected for the duration, the long haul, not long haul. Not to, uh, not to come and go as it best suits you or meets your needs, but to remain and to not leave. It requires grace and forgiveness for when people hurt you and acceptance in the face of conflict. We cannot be so quick to stop a relationship when something goes the way we don't like or even hurt us. That being said, disclaimer, there are times when boundaries are necessary and needed in a relationship and appropriate, where someone is repeatedly doing harm and being hurtful or disrespectful. <clears throat> Jenny Allen in her book provides some wisdom in situations where we are put in the path of someone else's ongoing patterns of relational destruction. She says, own your part and your mistakes. Own them. Seek reconciliation multiple times. Don't be afraid to move on if nothing ever changes. <clears throat> when you know it's time to move on from a friend, I challenge you to be honest and clear, not just ghost them. See, even when we find ourselves in a friendship that needs to end, we need to end it honorably and with the heart of Jesus, not condemning or judging. Jenny Allen continues, an honest conversation about why the friendship needs to end could propel them to recognize where they need to grow and change, and it might even repair the friendship. These five practices will grow and build friendship with Jesus and others. When practiced together, we would be fools to think that just practicing one only will produce the results of deep community. We, can't, we have to stop thinking that just gathering in a building with a couple hundred people every week for an hour will build community and build friendships. Or even just meeting in someone's house with a smaller group of people once a week for an hour or two will build friendships and community. It's not just proximity, it's not just being together. It is deep community and connection. I believe part of the reason we are so lonely is that we have, been, we have not been friends to others the way we are to be friends with Jesus. 
Let me repeat that. I believe that part of the reason we are so lonely is that we have not been friends to others the way we are to be friends with Jesus and the way he is a friend to us. We distance ourselves from people. We wall our hearts off and lives from them. We refuse to challenge or to be challenged. We seek out our own path instead of sharing one, and we are quick to abandon, ghost, or cut off anyone who annoys or hurts us for any reason, all of which leads to deep loneliness. Loneliness, though. Loneliness is overcome through friendship with Jesus. Our own loneliness, that of our own loneliness, is overcome by our friendship with Jesus. John 16, 32, Jesus says, Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus' connection and friendship with the Father ensured he was never alone. And when we build and grow our friendship with Jesus, we will always have a close friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. Right? It's still going. We will always have a close friendship with Jesus, one that will never disappoint or let us down, never cut us off or toss us aside when something better comes along. And just as our loneliness is overcome by being friends with Jesus, the world's loneliness, others' loneliness, is overcome through our friendship with them. And here's the big point. Being a friend towards others like Jesus is a friend to us. We tend to approach friendships like, like picking a team on playground sports. You, I'll take you, you look fast. You're tall, I'll take you. I've seen you play soccer before, so you're on my team. Right, that's how we go about friendship so often. Line up the best options and take the ones that best suit our needs. We choose friends based on our preferences and how they can best meet our needs. In the end, that has been a recipe for disaster, mainly because we enter these friendships with expectations no one can live up to. We expect our friends to meet the needs that only Jesus can. Our approach is to accumulate friends and to assume that they will solve our problems. Peter had lots of friends, didn't he? Surrounded in what seemed like deep community, but he experienced loneliness because of the weight of expectation that wasn't met. Our approach should be like Jesus, in that he gave himself up for others. He said, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his own life for his friends. Church, we need to stop accumulating friends, attempting to accumulate friends, and we need to be the friend that we desire to have. See, church, it's less about having friends and more about being friends to others. I'm gonna invite the worship team up because I'm out of time. And I don't wanna uh, not worship because I like to worship. But I will say this to, to kind of wrap it up. I, I, like, it's a fire hose, right? I'm sorry. Bear with me. It's a lot. It's a lot. But it's a lot because we need a lot. We need the friendship of Jesus. There is a lot to unpack here. I mean, we could probably do an entire sermon series that goes like 13, 14 weeks just on being friends and, and friendship. But we're doing it today in one because it's so paramount to building deep community. And church, we need to stop thinking about how we need to have friends and how we are to be friends to the world. Our loneliness epidemic in ourselves will only be overcome when we build and grow our relationship and our friendship with Jesus and meet, have our expectations met by him and him alone. And as we are better friends, become better friends with Jesus, 
we can be better friends to a world who's experiencing loneliness and uh, disarray and depression and anxiety, who need friends. So Jesus, God met these people, these three, Sarai, Simon, and Saul. He met them in their lowliest point. Changed their name, changed their story from servant to friend. In church, this is our role. This is our shared mission, if you will, with Jesus, is that we get the opportunity to change the story, to help Jesus meet people, to have their name changed and their story changed to be friends with Jesus. As we live out a friendship with Jesus and friendship with others, we are able to help change and shape the story of other people's lives to build and to begin to build a friendship with Jesus. Let's stand together.